Well, good morning again, and welcome to Two Rivers. If you have your Bibles, or if you want to grab one of those Bibles in the pew in front of you, would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 will be our focus uh, today. We are week two in a fall series uh, in the wisdom literature book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling the series Kingdom Living. I want to take you back to 1989. I was a high school sophomore. I was 16. I drove a 1987 Chevrolet Cavalier Z74. Tinted windows and five speed. I was 5'6 and 115 pounds. And I thought I was something else back in Gladeville, Tennessee in 1989. Also, 1989, a pretty infamous book came out uh, that many of you have probably heard of or read or know of, and it's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And there was a phrase, uh, well, I guess one of the habits that you perhaps you're familiar with, begin with the end in mind. You guys heard that phrase before? Begin with the end in mind. Another way of saying that phrase is go against the grain, because most people live life forward. And we do the planning, and we have all the expectations, and we talked about that last week a, a good amount. Uh, and so another way of saying begin with the end in mind is go against the grain, uh, go against kind of the way of the crowd, live life backward instead of forward. Uh, and that's the concept that we're trying to portray uh, in the image uh, there in Kingdom Living, the study of Ecclesiastes. Again, Ecclesiastes in the category of scripture called wisdom literature, um, giving us wisdom, really life advice. And, and so uh, let me summarize a uh, couple of minutes on what we talked about last week in chapter one. The first thing I want to remind you of is that we all agreed that country music is awesome. And I quoted Kenny Chesney last week. And the line is, a hundred years goes faster than you think, so don't, don't blink. Exactly. We talked last week about this statement, life is short. Life is a breath. Life is short, and we can't hoard life. It's not meant to be lived that way. We can only live into it, live into the moments that God has given us in our time together. And so we talked a lot about that. Life is short, and also that life is eternal. And so the wisdom from chapter one was how do we understand how to live into the moments that we have, a breath, uh, and keep eternity in mind. So that's what we talked about last week. We'll pick up more of those themes in chapter two. Uh, let me give you some context of really Ecclesiastes in general, but specific to chapter two before we get to the, the actual story and the words. There's a repeated Hebrew word that we talked uh, quite a bit about last week that I want to remind you of, and the Hebrew word is hybel, H-E-B-E-L, and typically it's translated uh, meaningless or futility or vanity in the translations that we're reading in English, uh, but the, the literal translation of that Hebrew word hybel is breath or vapor. And so in our study of Ecclesiastes, we're going to use that word instead of meaningless, futility, vanity. We're going to use the word breath or vapor. Uh, so I wanted to remind you of that, like a vapor or like breath 
life is mysterious. And the more we try to grab it, the more we try to control it, the more it slips through our fingers. The teacher of Ecclesiastes calls it a chasing after the wind. Secondly, contextually, from the beginning of Ecclesiastes 1 all the way to verse 23 in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, um, it is a narrative of his life. It is the, the thought process of the teacher in thinking about his life, his journey, what he has learned. Uh, God is really kind of absent in this narrative testimony from the beginning of the chapter or beginning of the book in Ecclesiastes 1 to verse 23 in our chapter today. And the striving self is at the center. And so the teacher gives some voice to that, um, to the raw, like human angst. Of that, he offers his own lament, uh, his struggle, a lot of strong emotion, especially today, a lot of strong emotion in the story. He asks questions honestly, and he is wrestling out loud and inviting us into his process. So that's second. Thirdly and lastly, uh, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes reveals the necessity of trusting God in a fallen, confusing, mysterious, frustrating world. No matter how wise we think we might be, no matter how rich we are, no matter how successful one may become, it's, it's all fleeting. It's all vapor. And it is only God whose work and toil endures forever. And so it is a kind of a, kind of a gritty, kind of down in the dirt kind of way of thinking about life and God and life with God. And so... Uh, I'm excited to spend the moments with you in chapter two as we continue the series today. I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. I love to quote C.S. Lewis. So to introduce chapter two, let me read this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, Weight of Glory. This quote will be familiar to some, if not most of you. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis, Weight of Glory. First nine verses of Ecclesiastes chapter two will give evidence that the teacher or the leader of the assembly fooled around in his life with drink and sex and ambition, and he went literally for all of it. He says in verse one, I said to myself, come now, I will test you, speaking to life, I will test life with pleasure to find out what is good. Verse three, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Verse four, I undertook great projects and he became very, very successful. I mean, he was an entrepreneur, had business savvy, very successful, very wise, did all these great projects, became very successful. Verse seven, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Gets more sinister. Verse eight, I amassed silver, gold for myself. 
I acquired male and female singers, which made me go like, like I grew up in a Methodist church and we had like a choir, like my mom was always like banging on the organ and my dad was singing in the choir. It's like, he literally had like a choir following him around, like singing songs. I mean, I was like, I think about that, that's pretty awesome. That'd be pretty awesome, you know, just like a choir following you everywhere. I mean, that would, I mean, I, I'd never heard of that before, but he embraced that. And he had a harem as well. And then verse nine, he basically says, I became great and I surpassed every king of Jerusalem before me. My paraphrase of that is, I am the big dog. Like, I, I've been there, I've done that, I've seen it all, I've done it all. No one, no one literally can surpass me. And that's his testimony. That's the journey he went on. I think a summary statement of all of the self-indulgence that he talks about between verse one and verse nine. So much self-indulgence. He summarizes that in verse 10 and 11. Let me read verse 10. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Let me pause there for just a second. Do you think that this kind of pursuit that the teacher went on, do you think this was just this particular king of Israel generations on generations ago? Or do you think this type of pursuit of happiness is still going on today in great measure? I would in... I would say for your consideration that people in general have always searched for happiness apart from God in so many different ways. We are all prone to this kind of human pursuit. One of the commentators in summarizing chapter two for us gave this summary to chapter two, the great human pursuit toward our own selfish ambition, to our own personal happiness. And the teacher experienced literally in every endeavor of pleasure, and I mean every one, it was wild stuff. And he says in verse 11, the summary statement, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was a breath a vapor, a chasing after the wind. Nothing, nothing was gained under the sun. According to Ecclesiastes, according to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, to the teacher, to the leader of the assembly, what spoils life is our attempt to take from it more than life itself provides to us. It's like our, our determination to take from life, which life cannot, will not give to us. But we are so determined to take it all for ourselves. And the truth is, in the end, achievements and personal pleasures simply do not last. The NIV commentary gives this summary statement, not just of chapter two, but of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. Experiencing life, this life that God has given us, is gift. It is gift from God. It is not gain. 
But we are so prone as human beings to go gain, to go get it, to control our life. And that's what the preacher is giving us testimony of what he has done in his life. And he's at this fork in the road. He's at this place in his life. And so he shares this testimony to us about what he has learned. And no matter how hard the teacher tried, he discovers the truth that he cannot make the world different than it actually is. Ultimately, he has to accept life on life's terms. All the wine, all the choirs, all the comedy clubs, all the sex, all the concerts, all the projects, all the money, he realizes, he realizes that he is left with sandcastles on the beach. So I grew up in the Nashville, Tennessee area, and we would always take a family vacation growing up down to the panhandle of Florida to Destin or Watercolor or Panama City Beach. And I have vivid memories of going to those beaches and spending hours with my dad building sandcastles. And they had underwater tunnels and moats and walls. And man, they were, they were amazing. I have vivid memories of these. And like pictures, taking pictures of this huge sandcastle on the beach. And then the next morning, we'd get up and I'd go down and look. And guess what? Gone. Tide comes in overnight. It's all gone. And just like that, just like that, hybel, vapor, breath, We can't hoard breath. We can't hoard life. We can only live into the moments that we have with eternity in mind. I think that word picture or that visual sandcastles on the beach is helpful in thinking about the complexity of our lives and how fleeting so much of it is. How fleeting is no matter, no matter if you consider yourself wise or foolish or rich or poor or young or old or whatever the spectrum is, sandcastles on the beach. And that's where the teacher gets to. And he has this problem, like this real problem that he faces called his own mortality. And that's what he begins to write about in verses 12 to 17. So read with me. Then I, then I turned... When I realized nothing was gained under the sun, everything was the breath, the chasing after the wind, nothing was gained. All the things that I did, nothing was gained. Then, verse 12, I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. And the wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to my heart, this too is a breath. For the wise man, like the fool, will not long be remembered. In the days to come, Both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. It's gritty, right? It's gritty. It's honest. It's an honest wrestle. And the truth is that he's realized, like, I can't take any of these accomplishments, 
any of this wealth, none of it, none of it I can take with me. And I think the real talk here for us to consider the wisdom is this. Death comes for every single person with no enduring remembrance. And it is the people, it is the people. This is, this is what he gets to this next. It's the people that follow us that will actually get to steward what we have been working and toiling for all of our lives. Like it'll go to the next generation. And he starts really getting trippy on that, that thought. In verses 18 to 23. I'll start with uh, verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. And all of it, all of it is a breath that's chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told, toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is a breath. So my heart began, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all that he owns to someone who has not even worked for it. Which is like, life's not fair. Right, do you hear that? Life's not fair. This too is a breath and a great misfortune, a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? Verse 23, all his days, his work is pain and grief, and even at night his mind does not rest. This too is a breath. Welcome to Two Rivers Church. <laughs> this morning, gritty, honest, real, authentic, we would be wise to lean in. We would be wise to lean in. What's the emotion here? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the teacher feeling? And I just go, man, I wrote down like, well, he's angry. Home Slice is pretty angry, right? I don't think anybody called him Home Slice because he was the king. <laughs> just me being tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, grief-stricken. Also, despair. He gives space for his raw emotion, his disappointment. He has chased after literally every possible pleasure, and he's grieving. And I would say to us, if we want to try to control our life, to manage our life, to control it, if we want to control our life, you too will be setting yourself up for despair. So question what are we going to get, what are you going to get for all of the toil and hard work that you have put forth here under the sun? And the honest, gritty, uncomfortable message from the teacher is this, not a lot. Not a lot is the honest answer. My question to you is, can you, will you linger here? Can you linger here? Will you linger here? 
can you feel and hold with the teacher what he is feeling and holding and not shove it under the rug? I hope so. I hope so. I pray so because that's where we gain a heart of wisdom by, Lord, teach me. Psalm 90, we said this last week. Lord, teach me to number my, my days so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. This is where we learn to live life backward. This is, this is how we learn to keep the main thing the main thing. But the temptation that we feel, it's uncomfortable for me to really think and consider my own mortality. It's really uncomfortable for me to hear in the, in the word of God that all the toil and all the work and all the things that I've accomplished and all the things that I've gained is the chasing after the wind and I'm gonna leave it to the next generation and I have no idea what they're gonna do with it. It's not easy, but I believe it's wise because the temptation is always to distract ourselves from questions like this. Like, who wants to really linger and think about the fact that unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, all of us, all of us are going to die, let alone prepare for it in a meaningful way? And so distraction and diversion are ways that we console ourselves from really looking at what the preacher, the teacher is inviting us to look at. And we refuse we refuse to face reality. And if we're not careful, we'll be easily tempted back to chapter two, verse one, where he says, come now, I will test you life with pleasure to find out what is really good. Wisdom is embracing the truth head on. This is a gift. And when the preacher gets there, verse 23, when he finally gets there, now, now he is ready. He is ready to think about process experience, gain wisdom, insight, knowledge on the first rays of light. So we get to verse 23. We transition to 24. Verse 24 and following the next three verses, that's really the, kind of the first rays of light in the first two chapters because he gets to the kind of the end of himself and he's allowing himself to really think about this in a fresh way. After his grieving, after his lament, the preacher finds the source, the true source of enjoyment and meaning in God and from, from God. These are the last verses in chapter two. Starting in verse 24, a man, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Like I'm learning to embrace life on life's terms. I'm learning that life is a breath. I'm learning to live into these moments. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This is, this is from the hand of God. This is from the gift. This is the, from the gift of God. For, for without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? Who possibly can eat and find any enjoyment apart from God? To the man who pleases him, God gives, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is a breath, a chasing after the wind. So I read this verse, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction. And I go... Boy, that sounds like that, like, 
philosophy, um, that worldview. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Um, nihilism, nihilism. Uh, it's existed for hundreds of years. It's usually associated with the 19th century atheist German philosopher, probably not gonna say his name right, um, Friedrich Frederick Nietzsche. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nietzsche. Nietzsche, German philosopher, nihilism, nihilism, don't judge me. He proposed that our existence, when we go, what's the point of all of this? He proposed that, ex- that our very existence is meaningless, moral codes are worthless, and that God is dead. So this philosophy is the rejection of all morality and the belief that life is truly meaningless. So, so go and literally do everything that the teacher did in verses one to nine. Go, go do that. The, the creed of this philosophy is this. Perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps you know it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we... Ah, did you guys know that? It makes me nervous. No, I'm kidding, right? Yeah, yeah. At first glance, we look at verse 24, and it seems like, wait, is the teacher aligned with this, like, pagan... Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because he says, like, there's nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work... This too I see is from, here's the the big phrase. This too I see is from the hand of God. See, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, That philosophy says you should live this way because that is all that there is. That is all that there is. And the wisdom of the teacher is not that. It is this. The teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, and find enjoyment in your work because that is where it is. That is where it is. That is where we are. And that is how it is. That is embracing life on life's terms. But it's certainly not all that there is because he embraces that life isn't gain. Life is a gift from God. And so in the Bible that we have here, eat, drink, find joy, satisfaction, because that is where life is, and that is how life is. And it is a gift from God. The challenge, the mistake, the the despair is when we take good things that God has given us by his grace, by his love, by his sovereignty. We take those good gifts, those good things, and we make the good things God things. And that's where we get in real trouble. And the teacher is saying, receive these good things from the hand of God. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work. That is where life is, and it's all of God's gift to you. And also remember, our lives (sighs) is a vapor. God is is the only thing that is truly lasting. And so we can pursue like circumstantial happiness. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Or we can receive lasting eternal joy 
from God. That can be present in your life, no matter if the circumstances of your life are really going well or really, really, really hard. I've said this statement for many years in ministry, back in my 20s, even when I was a youth pastor, and it's this statement. I believe that it's true, and I, I, I think that Ecclesiastes helps us grasp this, that in our life under the sun, that is a gift from the hand of God, truly only three things matter because truly only three things last. God, his word to us, and people. Everything else is chasing after the wind. Enjoy it. Be thankful for it. Receive the gift of it. Don't worship it. Don't make it a primary thing. God, God is primary. His joy is primary. So I, I would invite you to consider this. Like what if, what if instead of using the gifts, like, like in this moment, the gift of your life, the breath in your lungs, the fact that your heart is beating, the fact that we are here together, the fact that we have fellowship with one another. This is a good moment. This is a God moment. This is a gift, these breaths that we're breathing. So like, what if, like the gift that God has given us to be together, to breathe, to be alive, to, to have the generation that we have here under the sun, what if instead of using the gifts that God has given us in life to satisfy our, our own ambition, we would use them as opportunities to serve and bless. Conduits of God's goodness and blessing to people. What if instead of seeing our work, your work, my work, our work as a way to be successful, to way to climb the ladder, to get the degrees and get the plaques and hang them on your walls and all those things we talked about last week. What if instead of seeing our work as a way to be successful, we saw our toil as a gift to be faithful and generous. Generous. Jesus made this statement in Matthew 10, the gospel according to Matthew. Freely, freely you have received. Freely give. Don't allow the gift that I've given to you Stay with you. I've, I've, it's back to Abraham. I've blessed you to be a blessing to people. Freely you have received. Freely give. Matthew 23, the greatest among you. You want to know what it's going to be like in your, in the generation that I've given you, in this generation, the, the, the hybel that we have, this opportunity we have. Like the greatest among you, the greatest among you will be the humble servants the most spirit-filled people I know are the humble servants. And Jesus said, these are the greatest. You want your life to be great? Embrace the opportunity to be humble and to serve and be a conduit of God's generation to people. That's kingdom living. That's kingdom living. That's living life backward. That, that's the point. That's the point. This is the rhetorical question that the teacher asks us in verse 25. Apart from God, who can eat and who can find enjoyment? Implied answer is no one, no one. 
It's very similar. Every story whispers his name. Every story whispers the name of Messiah. Jesus said these words, John 15, Last Supper. I I am the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. Freely you have been given. Freely give. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We must understand, know, embrace our place in the story that we're living in. God is the creator. God is infinite. We are the created ones. We are finite. And in the preacher's epic quest, his epic quest to find happiness apart from God, and he went a long way and did a lot of things, it, lead, it led him to the discovery of like true meaning and purpose, not a striving after ambition and circumstantial happiness, but receiving eternal wisdom and joy, not from his earning, not from his doing, but from God's giving to him. So a couple things to share as we close our time in conclusion. I look at chapter two and I go, man, like... There was, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff going on in his life. There was, there was some mess. There was some stuff. There was some sinister stuff going on in his life. Would you agree? Read through chapter, you know, verses one to nine. And it's like, man, God enters into our mess, where it is and how it is. Ecclesiastes reminds us that wherever there is for you, wherever there is, God is willing to go, even the ugly places and the unlikely places. And so I look at that and I go, maybe, maybe we could, as people of God, as followers of Jesus, as, as um, witnesses of God's goodness and grace and mercy and hope and peace, maybe we too could go, could go where the messes are in the lives of people around us. Maybe we could show up in those places. Uh, and, maybe, and maybe not give like pithy christian answers. Maybe, maybe embrace that if you want to go into the messes of people's lives and stories and you want them to actually tell you where it's been and how it is and how it's been, you want them to unpack their chapter two verses one to nine story you're gonna to have to spend a whole lot more time listening and asking questions than talking and giving your answers. You're gonna earn the right to be heard by grilling up a good steak for them and inviting them to sit at your table instead of grilling them from your computer or your phone on your social media platform. I just... That, that stuff don't work, you guys. That doesn't make an impact. That doesn't invite people. It, it's just, it divides us further. God enters our mess where it is and how it is for you. 
right where it is today, right how it is today. And then he transforms us and then he invites us to be a part of that work with other people's lives. And in in that place, in that place, in that mess, where it is and how it is, wherever it is in your life, God's gift to you, God's gift to you is joy. It is not circumstantial happiness. It is not circumstantial happiness. It is joy. It is hope. It is peace. Verse 26, to the person who is pleasing in his sight, to the people who have faith in the goodness of God. We just sang the song. To the people who believe that God is good, who is pleasing in his life by faith, we are saved by faith through grace. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And so the promises of scripture is this, like around joy. You can't like go like achieve joy. You can't go earn joy. You can't get all your ducks in a row and get joy. You can't control your life to have joy. Because joy is from the Lord. It's the gift. Famous promise about joy from the Old Testament. The joy of our Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Does anybody know where that is? What story that's in? Anybody? Bible trivia? It's from Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me tell you the circumstances of what was going on in the life of Israel and God's people, the Jewish people, in Nehemiah 8. They had been exiled because of their disobedience. They had been apart from the land, away from Jerusalem. God, by his grace and his mercy, book of Jeremiah, if you want to study that later. By the way, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope and a prosper and a future and all that. You guys know that verse? Uh, we like to put it on our, our, over our doors and our houses and all that stuff. You know where Israel was when that promise came? They were in exile. Do you know how many years it took for the fulfillment of the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 to actually be experienced in the life of Israel? The next generation. The generation that got the promise had to hold the promise, the goodness of the Lord, but they didn't experience the fulfillment of that till the next generation. And then when the next generation, led by the prophet Nehemiah, goes back to Jerusalem, guess what they had to do? They had to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And guess who was still in Jerusalem when they were building the wall back around Jerusalem? Their enemies. And so Nehemiah, prophet of the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord to the people, you're going to have to rebuild the wall with one hand and you're going to have to fend off your enemies with the other. And he makes this statement, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Easy circumstances for Israel when the promise was made? Would you say it was easy? No, 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 no. Promise of joy? Yes, yes, yes. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Every story whispers his name. Jesus, John chapter 16, Last Supper. John 15, Last Supper, vine branches. John 16, we're still in the Last Supper discourse. He's going to the cross the next day. He says to the disciples, 
these words. You will grieve. You will grieve. You will have sorrow. Life is gonna be hard for you. Understand it, embrace it, know it. They will hate you because of me. You are going to grieve. And then he says this, but no one will take your joy from you. How can no one or nothing take joy from us? Because joy is not from this world. Joy is received from eternity, from the promise of God. And we can have it no matter what we're going through. Last week, I spent some time like talking with you about this question. What truly is the point of all of this? And I think, I think like holding, holding space like this together is the point. Being together, holding space, not just in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, but in the sanctuary of our lives. By the way, it is a sanctuary of your lives because the Holy Spirit has come into each and every one of you. You all are the temple of the Holy Spirit wherever you go. And so it's God's people holding space for the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the peace of God and the joy of God. I I believe that's the point. And then to go, oh my gosh, we've been so freely given, freely, freely we will give. Oh, the greatest are the humble servants. Lord, teach me to be humble. Teach me to be a servant so that I can, I'm blessed to be a blessing. This is the point. The joy of the Lord is our strength no matter what our emotions are. Would you agree that our emotions ebb and flow based on how the circumstances of our life ebbs and flows? I know mine does. So our emotions ebb and flow, our circumstances ebb and flow, but the promise of joy does not ebb and flow. The promise of joy is yours. It is yours. The joy of the Lord is your strength because it is his joy, not a manufactured joy, the joy that we have in God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we, we need more, more of your wisdom to, to wrestle, to question, to study, to read, to glean your truth that sets us free to the places of joy and hope and peace and grace and mercy and love that is ours no matter what circumstances we are in. Lord, we thank you that you enter into our mess where it is and how it is. And you remind us that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength always. And so, Lord, we speak joy, hope, peace, love, healing, restoration, redemption over the places in our lives that we look at and we go, Lord, I don't know what to do about this. All I see is brokenness. All I see is fear. All I see is shame. Lord, would we be recipients today in a fresh way of the promises from heaven to us? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you strengthen us today with your joy? Lord, could we worship? Could we worship even through our tears, even through our questions? Could we worship, Lord, with hope and peace because your joy is our strength. 
Give us more joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord together in response.